We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. It's Easter week, church. Amen. Amen. It's Wednesday, 48 hours from the Wednesday um, before Good Friday when Jesus would have gone to the cross to suffer and die for our sins, which two days following that, he would rise from the grave. And so we are here tonight and we're in celebration of what God has done. And so tonight, as we continue our series written in red, we are going to look at a moment that happened um, that particular week, just days, even moments prior to the crucifixion of Christ before his trial. And so what we're going to do over the next several Wednesday nights is tonight, we're going to look uh, specifically at Luke 22, and we're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we will begin next week continuing this series, but we're going to look in the Gospels at the things that Jesus said post-resurrection for several weeks. Following Easter, we're going to specifically look for several weeks at the things that Jesus spoke during His 40 days of appearances to over 500 people. What are the words that we know that Jesus spoke from Scripture post-resurrection? We're actually even going to look at some of those from John 21 uh, this coming Sunday on Easter Sunday morning when Jesus shows himself to the disciples. And so we're going to, uh, looking forward to that, looking forward to being with you guys. But we turn to a, a passage that many of you are very familiar with, um, both the beauty and the horror of this passage. Um, would you feel the agony and the pain as you take yourself into the Garden of Gethsemane? And so as, as we think about what it was, and we're going to talk about in just a moment as we read, what it was that Jesus went through uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what he was about to endure. It, it casts a special light when we start to think about that the things we go through in life, we don't know that we're about to go through them, right? Everything that comes up in life, we may have indicators, but because we don't have the omniscience of God, we don't know everything past, present, and future all at the same time. Where Jesus was different in that is he knew exactly what was about to happen. There was no mystery to him about what he was about to endure. He knew that the cross was coming. He knew that the wrath of God would fall on him. He knew that he would be betrayed. He knew that he would be disowned. He knew the beating that he would take. He knew everything that was about to come. And so... Even as we introduce that, I believe that one of God's greatest mercies is something that we don't ever thank Him for. And that is, I am very thankful that I don't know everything that's coming in my life. I couldn't handle it. I could not handle it. I'm glad I don't know about the joys that are coming. And I'm glad I don't know about the terrors that are ahead. Because the truth is, there are both in every one of our future. So we try to deal with the stresses and anxieties of our life, but we're dealing just with the stresses and anxieties that we know about either in the moment or in the past moments that we have experienced. And so as we talk about that tonight, I wonder how, and I think we all process this differently, but how do you handle stress? And when I say stress, I'm not talking about tonight everyday difficulties. That's certainly something to be talking about. I'm not talking about anxieties. I'm not talking about just the everyday pressures that you go through. I'm talking about when things absolutely 
go south, when things get painful and difficult, when shocking news, when terrible things happen, when things get like it's absolutely too much to bear, how do you process that? One of the things that I have learned in trying to walk with people and trying to understand myself is that people really are different in the way that they handle things. Um, very different. Sometimes there is a right and wrong, but sometimes it's just a different. Let me give you an example. When I hear extremely stressful, heartbreaking, terrible, bad news, I tend to, instead of reacting incredibly emotionally, I tend in those moments to get real quiet, very introspective. Um, sometimes, my wife has even said, sometimes it scares me how calm you are. Like, in the midst of something that's really, really horrible, I tend to kind of go the other way. I, I tend to, to really kind of find myself in a, in a different place, um, and, and it, t it takes me a, a little while. Other people may completely break down, um, throw down, throw a fit, scream, holler, cry. Sometimes people detach themselves from other people. Sometimes people want to be left completely alone. Sometimes people don't want to, want to talk about it for days on end. There are so many different ways of handling that. We see that in people's grief, but we also see it in the way that people handle tragedy and the way they handle difficulty. But specifically tonight, whether you're more introspective or whether you tend to be more overt in the way you express your personality, whether you're someone who wants to talk it out or whether you're the, the person who just wants to take a walk by yourself, the real question is not how do you process it, but does it bring you closer to God or does it create resentment between you and God? Um, Honest, honestly, I have experienced both in my life. There have been times in my life where some of the most painful things have brought me closer to God than I could have ever imagined. There are also some times in my life where there has been a bitterness and an anger that it took me a while to get over, and I'm thankful for God's patience in those moments. So, Tonight, whether it is that you're walking through something, whether it is you have walked through something, or whether or not you're willing to face the inevitable that you will walk through something, I think the Garden of Gethsemane really speaks into our lives about what, it, how, what do we do with that? How do we go to God with that? How do we pray in those moments? So following the Last Supper where Jesus has just been with the disciples, this story takes us, I believe, into the heart of Jesus like never before. Let, let's read together Luke chapter 22. I'm going to begin in verse 39. Luke went, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. 
exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Let's just take this just a little step at a time as we walk through this passage together. How does Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, how does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the incarnate Word, how does He go from fearless against temptation? The man who commanded nature, who commanded demons, who commanded sickness, who took on the religious authorities. How does a man who has looked fear in the eye going from that to being in such anguish that the Bible said he shed drops of blood? Have any of you ever sweated blood? I've never seen that. I've never actually seen that. Somebody actually sweat blood. So because of that, not that it couldn't have happened to Jesus and not happened to anybody else, but the inquisitive factor in me, I began to wonder what would it take, what would it take to sweat drops of blood? I don't want to find that out, but I'd like to know since I've never done it and I don't know anybody who's ever done it. There's actually a medical condition and it is very rare. But in moments of incredibly high stress, the capillaries that are up near the very top of the skin can begin to burst. And as they burst and the perspiration come, notice it doesn't say he sweat blood. That's not what it says. But the normal sweat that would have come out of your can come out of your pores began to mix with these busted capillaries so that every drop that came out of his face would have looked directly like blood. Now you can understand that because if you take even a drop of blood and mix it with a liquid, it looks like the blood has completely taken over the liquid. If you had a quart of water and you were to put an ounce of blood in a quart of water, it would look as if the entire quart of water had taken on the very appearance of blood. You've, you've seen that without getting graphic about medical conditions. You know what I'm talking about. So I'm picturing what this must have looked like for the Son of God who has been an absolutely fearless in every encounter we have seen and now he's praying and as he is praying he is so stressed and I guess I've heard that word so much that I think we've robbed it of meaning in our culture you know everybody's stressed everybody's anxious and everybody's depressed and I, I literally I say everybody but I mean like everybody uses one of those three terms now I'm not making light of the fact that I truly believe there are people undergoing depression, that people are truly suffering from anxiety, that people truly are, are going through some things. But if we're not careful, then what we are calling that we are stressed, anxious, depressed, we mix in what is everyday life. And that because of that everyday life, if you know what I'm talking about, if you just live, you're going to have some stress. That's just, that's, that's called life. If you get up in the morning and go to work and pay bills and raise kids and cook food and go to sleep at night, if you just live, part of life is dealing 
with problems and normal everyday issues. That's for a different day. That's over here. That's certainly something we can talk about, how you deal with that. That is not what this is talking about. This is talking about a different level of extreme, extreme dismay because he knows, obviously, that the wages of sin is what, church? Death. He knew he would be the one paying that debt. He knew what was going to take place, and he knew that the judgment and wrath of God was about to fall on him. I have preached many times on the reality of the crucifixion. We even talked about this past Sunday about some of the physical aspects of the crucifixion. And certainly I think that's important because we want to understand that, the that Jesus was a real person who lived and died and rose again in real time. And so we want to make sure that we understand from the historical context exactly what it was that happened. But also, I think we need to make very clear that the worst thing that Jesus endured on the cross was not the nails through his hands. The worst thing that Jesus endured on the cross was not the cat of nine tails across his back. The worst thing that he endured was not the crown of thorns. The worst thing that he endured had absolutely nothing to do with the physical torture, and that's all that you can describe it as, physical torture. The worst thing that he endured, remember, he is the triune God. The greatest mystery of the gospel is when someone comes to the one of the seven comments that was made on the cross known as the cry of derelage when he cried out and he quoted David in Psalm 22 and he cries out Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people have not understood that. How could God forsake Jesus? And I've even heard it preached before that God never forsook Jesus. That the Father never left the Son. You misunderstand the gospel. He absolutely, in those moments, not only forsook him, but poured all of the wrath of God poured out on him. In fact, when Jesus prayed the prayer, if it is your will, let this what? Let this cup. In the Old Testament, the wrath of God was symbolized as a cup. It was something that got poured, so it got poured out of a cup. So when you were talking about the wrath of God, you always talked about it in terms of something that would be poured out of a cup. So when Jesus is saying, allow this cup to pass from me, he's not just saying, I want out of this situation, I want out of this circumstance. He's not just saying, I don't want to be crucified. Though all of those things are certainly could be true, what he is specifically praying about is the reason that he was suffering from hematidrosis or the sweating the drops of blood because he is recognizing that in the next few hours that he is going to bear the full wrath of God. In other words, the penalty that is going to be paid for your sin and my sin as a compressed hell falls on the person and work of the second person of the Trinity. It is one of the most beautiful and horrifying pictures in all of Scripture. And yet Jesus knows that that is exactly what's about to take place. And so... I think it's important that in his prayer that the difference between Jesus being tempted 
and our being tempted is that where Satan tempts men by their fleshly desires to hold on to their sin, Christ is pure and perfect and righteous and holy, so Satan tempts him not to set aside his holiness by becoming sin. In other words, tries to tempt Jesus not to do what he was destined to do. So some have read this passage and thought, well, Jesus didn't really want to do this or Jesus was unwilling to do this. I think this is one of the most beautiful and thoughtful prayers in all of Scripture because it takes away what I believe are a lot of people's thoughts about how we should pray. When Jesus went before the Lord, He did not say, I'm unwilling to do this. He said, Lord, if there is any other way, We live in a world that wants to teach that there are other ways, right? How do you get to heaven? According to the world, any way you want to get to heaven. That obviously isn't what Jesus thought or what God the Father thought. Because when Jesus prays, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. Now, let me just appeal to your human love for just a moment. If you have children, grandchildren, even if you don't, just pick somebody that you've loved. If you've ever loved anybody in your life, whoever you want that to be, just pick the person in your life that are people that you would say, I love these people more than anything else. Now, imagine that person was to come to you and they were to say, if there is any way that you can keep from my life being taken, would you please try to do that? I can absolutely tell you when it comes to the people in my life that I love, and I'm winning no awards. I mean, I'm no award winner. I don't think I love my family any more than you love your family or probably any more than just normal people. I just I love them as much as I know how to love them when that's with everything I got. And if they ask me, hey, Dad, could you keep me from having to go through this pain? I can tell you the answer right now. Sure, absolutely. And, and, and I don't know the limit to that. I mean, I really, I don't know the limit to that. You need a kidney? Here, if, if I could go through it so you didn't have to, sure. Well, if I'm capable of that and you're capable of that, then when we go to the prayer at Gethsemane, he's looking at his father and saying, hey, if you can come up with any other way, then please, let's do that. But I'm not, I'll do it because I love you and I'm willing to submit, but is there any other way? And yet some people are willing to deface the very gospel, to spit upon the sovereign holiness of God and say that there is another way when if there was another way, do you not think God the Father at that moment would have taken Jesus? There wasn't another way. Never has been another way. That's the very point of what takes place later. Whatever struggle, whatever hurt, whatever worry... What we know is that because of what Jesus went through on the cross, because of what we see in Gethsemane, that Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 is exactly right. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When Jesus cries out and says, Father, obviously God loves His Son. And He loves His Son in a more magnified way than any earthly father has ever loved a child. Yet the Father was unwilling to let the cup pass. In getting ready to, to teach this passage to you, I came at it and thought about something that I had never in my life thought about before as far as trying to understand this because it's always preached from the standpoint of Jesus, right? Jesus' agony, Jesus' stress, Jesus' anxiety, and certainly it should be. But for just a moment, I want you to think about what God the Father was going through in those moments. Now, I don't want to pretend at all to intrude on the sovereignty or the mind of God in how His emotions work. But I think it is fair to say that in this moment that the Father probably with everything in Him as desperately as He wanted to save us in the love of His Son, there had to have been the draw to say, forget it. Come home. Come home. And I guess this is really disturbing to me. Because what we really have in this is that we have to be a people who really do understand the magnitude of the love of God. Because if God the Father was anything like us in the way that we love, you already know what the answer to this prayer would have been. You come home and let them all go to hell. Think about it for just a moment. As much as you love any other person, it is unfathomable that your child would die in their steed when they were the ones who were guilty of the blasphemy for which your child would be punished. That's a love beyond compare. It's a gospel with incomparable beauty. And so when he asked the Lord to take the cup, the cup symbolizing the wrath of God, it was such a horrendous judgment that Jesus knew what was coming upon him. And he cries out. Because what we know Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, that what Jesus knew was that he who knew no sin would become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin would become sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's taking place as the cup is coming on the Lord Jesus, and yet He prays, but not my will, but your will. The issue is not whether God could, but whether God would. The Father's will was what was most important. 
It may seem at times as though I have an axe to grind with some aspects of theology that plagues our nation. And if that is the impression I'm giving, then I'm giving the exact impression that I want to give because I have an axe to grind. I think that there is a damnable, heretical, unorthodoxed, ungodly, and unbiblical theology that it's crept its way into the hearts of weak-willed, uneducated, biblically educated people. And you probably already know where I'm headed with this, but it is part of what we see so pervasive in the country with the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth heretics and all that goes with that. And if there was, if you didn't have any other passage, no other passage in Scripture that addressed that but the Garden of Gethsemane, it would completely destroy it. Why? Because Jesus didn't name and claim anything. At the end of our prayer, the issue is not, most of us say, we'll tack on in Jesus' name, Lord, let your will be done at the end of the prayer. But what I want you to understand is that is the most important part of the prayer. Because when Jesus says, not my will, but yours, where do we dare get off thinking that we can command the sovereignty of God, which is what the prosperity gospel teaches? That you can command God to do things, that you can name it and claim it, that there is a miracle in your mouth, that you can speak things into existence, that the power of your mental state can overcome all obstacles and all barriers when the Bible says that even Jesus, when He prayed, said, but not my will, but yours. And Jesus could have commanded any legion of angels He would have wanted. Jesus in this moment didn't have to die for you and I. But He was surrendered to the will of God. And yet, so often I think that we miss the very heart of prayer because we, don't, we really need to get at that our greatest desire for ourselves is not what we want but what the will of God is for us. Even in our own limited existence, even in our own limited understanding, even in your own limited spirituality, how many of you now have lived long enough to look back on your life and now know that God did not give you some things that you asked for and you are so thankful that He did not? How many of you have thought that God should have done things a different way, but now that you've got time and perspective, you're looking back and going, I'm sure I'm glad it was His will and not mine. And I'll tell you why. All I've got to work on, and this is really all of us have, is we're doing the best we can with the information we have at hand. The difference in you and the Lord is vast, but one of those differences is He is not limited in the information He has at hand. He has it all. So we bow before Him and we pray, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer is more than learning the right words to say, but about developing a relationship with God. We may at times get exactly what it is we ask for, but more importantly, we get God Himself, which increases our faith and increases our obedience. When we come before the Lord 
and pray in this way that we are submissive first, it changes the way we come to the Lord. And notice what it says, verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. We know that an angel appeared two times in Christ's life between his birth and his resurrection. We are told during his temptation in the wilderness, and we are told now during this temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. What we know is that angels minister, though not visibly, we know that they minister to those who submit to God's will. Hebrews 1.14, angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit eternal salvation. Um, by the way, y'all want some bonus coverage tonight or y'all want me to just keep going? Y'all, y'all, are y'all up for a tangent? Y'all good? Is your attention span okay? I mean, you roll with me tonight. This won't take long. Yeah, how many of you have heard that we have guardian angels? Wrong. Wrong. And I'll tell you why that's wrong. Because that makes an angel subservient to the human. In other words, that you were created when you were created, you had an angel assigned to you. Wrong. How do I know that? Because angels were not created for your glory. They're not bowing down at your feet saying, holy, holy, holy is the you almighty. You don't have somebody that is assigned to you that when people saw it, they bowed down and say, woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The response is not, oh, please don't kill me to your own personal angel. Now, be careful before you run out of here. I'm not going back there anymore. He said that, I don't have a guardian angel. I mean, you might not, but you don't. So let me help you with that. That does not mean that an angel cannot minister to you. But what I have seen in evangelical theology is a dangerous interest in both angels and demons. Colossians had a lot to say about it. This you know, when we get into angelology, people, there's nothing wrong with understanding the biblical role of an angel. But I think what you need to understand is that you don't have to worry as much about the role of the angel because you pray to the God who commands the angel and then allow God to do His will. And if it be His will to minister to you through an angel, then so be it. Or He decides to minister you another way. Or if He has other things for his angels to be doing, then that would be his prerogative as well. But when we get so far down the road of being focused on angels and, by the way, being focused on demons, I think that what we have done is lost a perspective on how we need to be addressing that. When we see that the angel came to Jesus and ministered to him, I want you to know that at every moment and at all times that there is spiritual warfare going on in heavenly places where you, that is unseen. It is unseen. So even now, I believe that there is spiritual warfare that is taking place over the hearts and lives of people. The Bible is clear on that. 
Absolutely clear on that. But what it is also clear on is that we serve the sovereign king who commands the angels. So because of that, here's my issue. If God wants to minister to me with an angel, then fantastic. But he also never has to let me know that that's how he did it. Right? If he wants to minister to me through the power of his Holy Spirit, which he does every day because I'm indwelled, and by the way, if you're saved, so are you, then I'm great with that. If he wants to use another human being to minister to me, you know what? He's God and I'm fine with that. If he wants to use the body of Christ, which is the church, then I'm great with that. So when we see angels that are ministering in Scripture, we need to understand that they are certainly all inspiring and incredible beings, but there are people who say, I, I, I wish I was an angel. Bonus coverage number two. That is a dumb thing to say. And let me explain to you why. Do you know that the angels have reason to be jealous of you and I? If you're saved. If you're lost, they don't have any reason to be jealous of you. Why? Because you are redeemed. You are blood-bought. That doesn't mean that the angels won't be in the heavenlies forever. But people will say all the time, well, and I've heard this at funerals so much, and if I ever, I hate being on stage at funerals, by the way, I'm just, I'll tell you this, a lot of times I've got to be on stage at funerals, and there's nothing to hide behind. So my facial expressions sometimes betray my heart, and I'm not, I've never been good at that. My wife gets on me all the time. She's like, it's uh, like you wear it on your face. And I'm like, I, I know, I'm, I'm trying, but I, I, I don't know if I have long enough left in life to improve that. I might just give up. But one of the things is they'll say, Mama's an angel now. No, she's not. No, she's not. If she wasn't an angel before she died, she's not an angel after she died. And it's especially not true of some of the people that they're talking about. My goal, I don't desire to become an angel. I desire to become what God intends me to be, and that is holy and blameless and perfect by the blood of Jesus accepted into the heavenlies, right? That's enough about angels. We can move on. Um, we can move on. Thank you all for allowing me to take that little jaunt. The disciples. Look what happens. Jesus had prayed. Verse 32, if you go back in this passage, go all the way back. Simon, Simon, verse 31, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's interesting. Some people will say, well, God doesn't get, Jesus must not can get His own prayers answered. I've prayed that your faith would not fail. Read the rest of the prayer. But when you turn back, he wasn't, he already knew, he already told him he was going to fail. He'd already told him he was going to deny him. That wasn't what the prayer was about. The prayer was about that after the denials, that he wouldn't lose or he wouldn't bankrupt the faith that he had. And so Jesus is giving him this as an encouragement. I've prayed for you, not just that you're not going to mess up, but after you mess up, I've prayed that when you return, you would return and you would use what God's taken you through to strengthen other people. Now that's a prayer. 
Some of you have been through some garbage and committed some sin, and you either can let Satan have that sin and own you with it, or you can use it to minister to other people as part of the testimony of how God's grace has lifted you and redeemed you. So now you would think after that that Peter's going to be like, I'm not sleeping. I'm not sleeping. And I don't know what this must have been like. I know at times, have you ever had that feeling when you're driving? You know that feeling I'm talking about where it's like all of a sudden, like I, I, I've got to stop. I've got to open the windows. I've got to turn the air conditioner on full blast. I've got the music going. Because you get that, almost that fog that comes over you and you're, you're, you're pulling your eyelids. How many of you in here, anybody in here ever fallen asleep at the wheel? Honestly, you've ever done that? I've done it one time. I've done it one time. I ran off I-59 in between Laurel and Hattiesburg. And when I opened my eyes, my, my Chevrolet was off the highway and the mile markers were on my left. That's, that's a problem because I was in the grass. And by the grace of God, when I jolted and jerked the wheel, it, it actually went right back onto the interstate and I immediately pulled over. And that's never, happ never happened again because I now know if that, feeling starts to come I'm, I don't I don't play with that anymore pull over do whatever you have to do so I don't know what it was that the disciples and Peter were going through but they cannot keep their eyes open and so they're told to pray so they don't fall into temptation yet Matthew and Mark tell us that he went back not once not twice three times what are they doing every time these people are worse than some of you on Sundays. Pass smooth out. And I tell you what, this encourages me though, because they can sleep through Jesus' preaching. In fact, did you know that they could sleep through Paul's preaching as well? Paul preached one time, a guy fell out of a window and died. He passed out so hard he fell out of a window and they had to revive him from the dead. So if you fall asleep, I'm just saying it ain't my fault, right? And so he goes back three different times and they're sleeping and they're sleeping and they're sleeping. And he tells them, he told them to pray. They failed to pray. Told to pray three times. Failed to pray three times. Yet prayer is the secret to overcoming temptation. But we miss the way of escape if we're asleep without going through the power of prayer. If we don't face temptation or try to face it without prayer, then we're going to be defeated Every single time. Following prayer, Jesus defeated Satan, He defeated sin, and He defeated death. And if we are going to have any type of victory, it's going to be because we are vigilant in prayer. Now, when Jesus comes to them and He tells them that they are to pray, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Extra something here. I'd have been mad that they weren't praying for me. I mean, I've told y'all what I'm about to go through. Y'all hadn't seen me get it. You think one night, like one night, y'all could pray for me? I'm not, I'm not asking you. I don't think that's too much to ask. I'm going to die by a cross, and I'd like for you to pray for me. You think you could do that? That's not what he said. Pray so that you don't fall into temptation. We need to understand that I think sometimes we discount 
the power of prayer. Regularly asking the Lord for help. And I'm getting better about this because the Lord's been good about teaching me. Not better at prayer because I think I've got so far to go, but better at this. I'm, you do not have to be an expert to pray well. You don't have to be a theologian to pray well. You don't have to pray long to pray well. You don't have to pray wordy to pray well. You don't have to quote 2 Thessalonians to pray well. You just have to pray. And you simply can pray simply. How many of you have ever had a prayer where you were so overcome, all you could pray was, please help me? I don't know if that's so, not some of the better prayers that some of you have ever prayed. Not some flowery, seminarian, theological treatise. Just, oh God, God, I'm going to fail. Oh God, sometimes when sin creeps into my mind and into my heart, I, I've tried to do better about lately thanking God for His conviction. God, thank You for reminding me that. God, help me. Sometimes going into a conversation, I've figured out a lot that I do a whole lot better if I'm like, God, please help me not to kill these people. Like, uh, I don't want to respond in kind. I don't want to please help me because my flesh is going to want to choke them and I don't want to choke them. I'm just being honest. Sometimes we've got to pray in a real way that we come before the Lord and say, I need help. I just need help. And you'll be amazed that when you pray like that, it is incredible what God can do with that. I hope that tonight, as you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, it helps prepare you because you think about not only what would come after that in the death and His burial, but also in His resurrection. I'll share briefly with you... Um, one of the more moving places that we had the opportunity to go in Israel um, was the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, one of the things that's beautiful about the Garden of Gethsemane the, uh, when you go there is there are certain places in Israel that would be called um, X marks the spot places. In other words, some places you go, you know you're in the general vicinity, but you're not positive that this is the exact location where it happened. But there are number one sites which are known as no doubt, definitively, this is without a doubt, archaeologically, historically, geographically, we are positive that this is exactly where it is. Gethsemane is one of those. You can go and actually stand among the olive groves that are on Gethsemane that look over the hill into Jerusalem. You can stand where it was that Jesus would have been praying that night. You can see where he would have been off by himself. It is simply a grove of trees, um, not extremely large, but large enough that somebody could easily wander through there. And as you're, as you're there and as you're walking and seeing these trees, I just found this interesting we were told that the olive trees that are there, that some of them actually are over 2,000 years old. The trees. So what does that mean? Now they wouldn't have been full grown, but what that certainly possibly means is that one of the trees that is currently in the Garden of Gethsemane could have very easily been a small tree when Jesus prayed in the garden. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. 
Absolutely mind-blowing. And so we're standing, and one of the things they allowed us to do is they gave us about 20 to 30 minutes, and they just said, go find a place and pray. In the garden, like in the garden of Gethsemane, you're, you're, you're praying. So I get off by myself, and I thought, okay, this is going to be, I'm just shooting you straight. I can't wait. And then when I just kind of knelt down there by myself to pray, I was so overcome, like, I don't, like, I actually didn't even feel like I should have been praying there. That may sound odd, but I was like, I don't have any right to be here. Like, this is kind of odd, almost like presumptuous. Like, let me go pray somewhere else. Like, it just, it was too much. And so, but as I, I bowed there, I realized that even that feeling in and of itself is the prayerful heart that I think God wants us to have. Completely overcome by His majesty, completely overcome by His grace, completely overcome by his sovereignty and his beauty, the recognition that we are unworthy and that this, because of that, it is because of that that we come to God with the humble recognition that, oh God, we needed the man of Gethsemane to even be able to bow our head. We needed the man who knelt near that tree that night before. We needed him desperately, not just to teach us how to pray, but we needed him to give us the ability to be able to pray. But because it's only because he left Gethsemane and went to the cross that now because the curtain is torn in two and the veil has been opened to the Holy of Holies, that when I bow my head, whether it's in an olive tree in Jerusalem, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, or whether it's in Summit, Mississippi at this altar, I have a Father in heaven that hears my cry. And one of the reasons that he hears me is because the cup of wrath did not pass from the person of his son, but fell completely on him so that, praise God, it would not have to fall completely on me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have not only showed us how to pray, but you have taught us and taught us well. Lord, I'm thankful that in the times of gravest and deep anguish of our heart that Lord we are able to come before you that Lord we're simply able to bow and to think about oh how you love us you love us enough that you gave your life Lord there's nothing more than anyone could have given so Lord Jesus we thank you for going to Calvary we thank you that our sins can be forgiven. We thank you, Lord, that now we have a hope that is secure, that is an anchor for our soul. And so, Lord, today, may we be overwhelmed with the beauty of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.